Well, good morning. It's uh, very good to be here with you all. It's been a number of years, and uh, several have walked up and uh, remembered my wife's name, and I'm very thankful for that. I'm going to have my wife stand. Preacher mentioned her, but this is my wife. Uh, Mal Soon is her name, and uh, I, I won't spend time this morning telling you how to remember that. Many of you already do, but, uh, but I'm thankful that we could be here with you all. Appreciate the invitation and looking forward to what uh, the Lord is going to do. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and open the book of 1 Kings in chapter number 3. 1 Kings chapter number 3, and when you find your place, if you'd stand with me this morning in honor of the Word of God, I don't know, there may be some visiting and looking around saying, what are these people doing? I'm telling you what they're doing, they're having church, amen. And uh, boy, this is, uh, this is a blessing. You say, do other people act like this? Oh yeah, all over the country, people act just like this, amen. And they like it. They like coming to church, and so uh, trust you will as well, uh, not because uh, we're here, but because we meet with the Most High God in this place today, and so praise the Lord for that. First Kings chapter 3, we're going to begin to read in verse 1. The Bible says, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David, until he had made an end of building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places, because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to set on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. But And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings, and offered peace offerings, and made a feast to all his servants. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time today. And uh, Lord, thank you above all just for what you've done for us on Calvary in your dear son, Jesus Christ. You left nothing behind. There was no unfinished work. As that day drew to a close, as Jesus was literally laying himself down, his life down, the end of all of that, he said these words, it is finished. All that would ever be necessary was completed. The way to life was now made for every man, everyone who would come and would partake of the promise and uh, become uh, followers of Jesus, would now have a door through which they might find everlasting life. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for what you've done in uh, the lives of countless people around this room, how you've proven yourself to be God and worthy of following, worthy of walking with you, behind you, because you have transformed lives. You have taken death and made it life. You've taken a struggle and and addiction, and you have set us free. Lord, you've uh, taken our our, uh, desires uh, that that were dark and that were harmful, and you've given us light and life in their place. Father, we are grateful, and we pray that you would speak to us and that you would work in us through your word today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing, and please be seated. First Kings chapter 3 begins to outline the uh, start of the reign of King Solomon. Now, many of you, if we were to take some kind of survey this morning, would say something like, man, Solomon was probably like the greatest king ever, and he was the wisest man that ever lived, and, and all of that. And you would uh, perhaps think uh, very highly of Solomon. I want to take a little bit of time with you this morning and examine some things. And really to get into this text, I want to back you up just a little bit and and show you where we're at. I want you to jump back just one verse to the last verse of of 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 46. It says, So the king commanded Benaiah, uh, the son of Jehodiah, which went out and fell upon him, that he died. Now this is the phrase. And the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So when you begin chapter 3, we find this out, that the the kingdom is now Solomon's. It's not a light thing. In fact, there's a process. If you would uh, just uh, go back a a few verses, maybe the same page, maybe a page back to verse 12 of chapter 2, it says this, Then sat Solomon on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. You notice that there's a word different, really, between those two uh, assessments of Solomon sitting on the throne. At the beginning of this, David has uh, died, Solomon sets on the throne, and it says his kingdom was established greatly. So that greatly doesn't mean magnificently. What that greatly means is mostly. It was greatly done, or the greater part of what needed to be done was done. But there were still things that needed to be done so that Solomon could really have a firm grip on the kingdom of Israel, and he could follow God and lead the people to do the same. And those things take place, or at least part of them, between verse 12 and verse 46 of chapter 2. Now, I don't want to go through all of that. I really want to move forward in chapter 3 with you, but I just want to sort of explain it to you. 
If you were to read that section of verses, please don't do it uh, during the service. Please try to stay focused. But if you were to read it, you'd find out that a bunch of people end up dying. They do. There's Joab, the supposed great general who dies on the horns of the altar. There's this, uh, this event that we just read at the end of. We just read a part of it. There's, uh, uh, there's Shimei. You might be familiar with Shimei. Shimei was the guy that when uh, David was running because of a rebellion in his kingdom and he was headed out to a place called Machaniam, uh, he stood up there and threw rocks at the king. That's a, probably a good way to uh, not have a good day. But he'd been allowed to live, and, and uh, he was uh, brought in. Solomon talked to him and said, if you'll stay in the city, uh, then you can stay alive. If you go out of the city, then you're going to die. Now, you might read it or hear me just describe it briefly and, and think, man, this is, really, this is really pretty hard. This is, why is Solomon, why is all this happening? Here's why. Because what all of these people in chapter 2 are, are people whose allegiance is not wholly given to Solomon as king. And they are a threat to dividing the kingdom. In fact, some of them stood with a guy by the name of uh, uh, Ahijah, I guess, or uh, Solomon's half-brother, uh, who had named himself king in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And they had stood loyal to him. And they were now, uh, he was out of the picture, let's say, and Solomon is chosen by God through David to be the king of, uh, of the nation of Israel. And so some of these people, they had split allegiances. And they couldn't be trusted. And so what really is going on here is nothing abnormal uh, for their time, certainly. And that is those that would, uh, that would threaten to divide the kingdom. They would bring trouble to the nation by, uh, by insurrection and those sorts of things. They were being eliminated so that there could be a united nation behind their king. It was just a part of the process. But until those, until those uh, infidelities, until that unfaithfulness was solved, then really the kingdom couldn't move forward in full strength. There's something else going on, though. You don't find it in chapter 2. You find it back in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, I want you to leave something here in 1 Kings 3, and I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 17 with me very quickly. And we'll go back to 1 Kings 3 in a moment, and we'll, we'll just move forward. But Deuteronomy chapter 17 it is an interesting phrase. People sometimes debate back and forth whether God ever intended them to have a king. I'll leave that in your court. I believe God intended to be the king of his people. They were a theocracy. God intended for them to be a theocracy. But we know that a day came when the people stood up and said, we want a king like all of the other nations. Here's what I want you to know about God. He wasn't a bit surprised. In fact, in the giving of the law, that's what Deuteronomy is. It's the restating of the law of Moses, the covenant by which Israel inherited the land. He said this, uh, he said this uh, uh, to them in verse number 14 of Deuteronomy 17. He says, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as the nations that are about me, which is precisely what they did says this, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom, thy God, Lord, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One uh, from among thy brethren, thou shalt set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. And so the first thing he said to them, I just want you to get this, we'll run through it, is number one, when the day comes that you demand a king, you can't set someone who's not of the nation of Israel as king over you. 
And so he set the criteria of being this, that they had to be an Israelite, not a Moabite or, a, or anything else, not one that's not of your brethren. It kind of makes sense if you ask me. It's probably a bad thing for a nation to set as king someone who's not a part of that nation. That's probably a bad thing. But God sets that criteria. But then he goes on and says this. Once he says this is who or the kind of person you'll choose to be a king, he now goes and gives some, uh, some uh, boundaries or some things that are required that the king not do as he would take his kingdom. Look in verse 16. It says, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. And so God said this, check this out. When you, when you uh, do have a king, you set a king up who is of your brethren, and when he becomes the king, he's not supposed to multiply horses unto himself. And you go like this, but I like horses. Here's what that was about. It wasn't really about horses. It was about dependence upon God. Here's how. In these days on the battlefield, horses were the great combat multiplier. They were like the tanks today, right? You know, infantrymen with rifles, lots of tanks. Guess who wins? It's the guys in the tanks. And the horses were what made armies strong. And what God was saying to them is, listen, when you have a king, he'll not rely on his military might for his strength. He'll rely on me because I'm the warrior God. And I'm the one who's sovereign over all things. And that the battles are really not yours, but they're mine. And so I don't want the king to build himself up to where he can say, I don't need God anymore. And so he'll not multiply horses to himself. It also says in the next verse that neither shall he uh, multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. And so the second thing he says is, when you have a king, he's not going to have a lot of wives. He's not going to multiply wives to himself. And you might think, well, preacher, I mean, that just makes sense. So one is, is right and all of that. Yeah, but it was common for kings in those days to have lots of wives. And here's the reason why. Because what they did is they married the daughters of other kings. And they did that so they would enter into uh, political alliances. It's called making affinity. Affinity here is not a sort of fudge or, uh, or a warm, fuzzy feeling. Affinity here means that they're entering into a, into a political contract, if you will, where they have each other's backs and they've now partnered together to, to have more political might than others around them. And so when you would multiply wives, when they would multiply wives, what they would do is they would marry the wives of all of these other, uh, of all these other kings or powers around there. And in doing that, they would all be sort of linked together in purpose and their might would be, uh, would be magnified. And God said, no, you don't depend on anybody else or any other people for your standing in the world, for your political might, for your ability to lead. You see, I'm God alone. And I just want my king to lead my people to depend completely upon me, not only for their protection, but for their status in the world. They're standing in front of men. And it was all about dependence upon God. He also says this in that same verse, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Say, okay, well, duh. Listen, you can get so much wealth that you disregard God as the one upon whom you depend in your life. 
God is not against wealth. He's against the accumulating of wealth as your total and entire security. And God said this, I'm enough for you, and I'll sustain you. And that I'll give you, here's what he says, enough in despair, that I'll care for you in a way that's greater than you could ever care for yourself. And don't you go out and accumulate wealth so that suddenly as you live your life, you no longer have any need you think in your life for me. And so he gives these instructions. Now, here's what I want you to know. Solomon knew them all. Because the next instruction says this. It says, uh, uh, verse 18, And it shall be when he setteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of which is before the priests and the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. And so he says, now listen, when a king comes, what a king is going to do when he first sets on the throne is he's going to go to the Levites there in the tabernacle or later the temple, and he's going to get from them this book of the law. These are the, 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 the words of the covenant. You have them. They're called Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's going to get them, and he's going to take them, and he's going to sit down, and he's going to very carefully and diligently begin to write them out with his own hand. He's going to copy them exactly with his own hand. And here's the reason why. So he'll have his own copy, and that it'll be with him all his days. And that he will, having taken the time to written it, uh, having taken the time to write it, excuse me, that he will know it very well. Uh, listen, you can read over things. I don't know if you've ever done this. Uh, I won't admit to it. Uh, but um, I, have you ever just read something and read for like 15 minutes, uh, closed it up and went, I wonder what I just read. You think, man, I'm getting senile. No, no, no. You're not getting senile. You're just not focused, okay? We can all do that, right? I mean, you're, you've probably sat down in the morning to read your Bible and thought about golf. Oh, oh no, that, right? You thought about golf. <laughs> Oops, I forgot the cardinal rule. Never preach at the preacher. <laughs> and you get done reading all that stuff, and you really got nothing out of it at all. It just was a focus issue, right? But if you would sit down and write it, well, you have to be careful with that, don't you? And so he said, look, I want him to write it so he'll know it, so it'll be a part of his mind and that, and that he might have it with him, and it would have it all the days of his life, verse 19, that he may learn to fear the Lord as God, to keep all the words of this law and the statutes to do them, and that he would remain humble before the people. See, God never said to a king, you're the master, they're the slaves. He said, you're the servant leader of my people according to my truth. So here's what I want you to understand. If you turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3, there are some other things I'll tell you about them. When Solomon comes to this place where it says the kingdom is established in his hand, that means that all of those that are a threat to divide the nation have been dealt with, and that the word of God, the law of God, has been written by his hand, and he's now sitting on the throne with the knowledge of what God said in his head and a copy of the words of what God said in his hand. And he's prepared now to fear the Lord and to walk forward in obedience to that book or to the word of God, uh, leading the people to walk that way. And that's why it says the kingdom is now established in his hand because all of that was done. 
There are some other things that Solomon wrote out in that book that matter in this chapter that I'll tell you quickly. One of them is this, that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7 and verse 3, God said to the nation of Israel, you'll marry no uh, women or women marry men who are not of Israel. And this is why. Because all of those nations had other gods. So it wasn't an ethnic thing. It was about being loyal to one God. And what he said is, is if you go marry them, your affections will be greater for them than for me. And their gods will lead you away. So he said not to do that. He also said that uh, sacrifices were only to be uh, given in the place where God had chosen to place his name. So if you're sacrificing to God, the book of Deuteronomy said, you didn't just go build an altar like wherever you wanted to and throw a cow up on there and say, uh, this is for God. That you were to come to the place that God had chosen to place his name. And you were to offer it there. Now 1 Kings 3. I call this, as I have studied it, the beginning steps of Solomon's reign. And it records the events that he does. Listen to what they are. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. Can, I, can, can you stop reading there? I mean, we've just gone through all this. We'll do a little test. Was that okay? That wasn't even close to okay. Well, maybe Solomon didn't know. <laughs> no, no, no. He knew, didn't he? I mean, he copied over by hand the book of the law. He'd been raised by David, who was not a perfect man, but he was a man after God's own heart. Can I tell you that David was saying things to him as he grew up like, son, you're going to be the next king. In fact, we read in this very book that, that, there's, a, that there's a time uh, where David is old and he's really struggling, but there's some overlap where David charges Solomon very clearly to obey the words of this book and to follow God through this book. Solomon knew good and well that he had no business marrying the Pharaoh's daughter. And the first really recorded official act is he marries the Pharaoh's daughter. Try to figure that one out. Can I tell you why he did it? He does some more. And it's this reason that I want you to get. Knowing what the right thing to do is, is sometimes different than doing the right thing. And the reason is, is that we often exempt ourselves from what we require of others. And we just say this, well, people shouldn't marry the Pharaoh's daughter, but I can handle it. And he just gave himself an exception, if you will, to obeying God on this point. And so he marries the Pharaoh's daughter. It goes on and says this uh, in verse 2. It says, only the people sacrificed in high places. The word only there is a word that literally means, well, except, right? Well, all of this was going on, but the people are still doing this. Why is that an issue? Well, because they were commanded to, uh, to offer sacrifice in the place where God had chosen to place his name. 
And Solomon knew that, didn't he? He had written that book out by hand and had it in his possession and had been raised up to understand it. And now all of a sudden he's the king and his people begin to worship other gods in a wrong way or God according different than he'd commanded. Solomon should have stepped in and said, hey, we're not doing this. This is not the people we are. But Solomon tolerated this ecumenical worship where they would go up in these high places and they would, they would offer a sacrifice and they'd say, this one's for Jehovah and this one's for, you know, whoever, and they would, they would offer to all these other gods. And Solomon just tolerated it. But here's the problem, uh, that he had the book. He'd been charged by his father. He'd been charged by God in the book of Deuteronomy to get the book, know the book, and live the book, walk according to the truth of the book. And the second thing that he does is say, well, it's okay. I mean, you know, it's okay. You can worship however you want to, I mean. Who are we to tell you how to worship? Well, the answer is we're nobody, but God is everybody. And God determines what's worship and what's not worship. I don't. God does. And so here we find Solomon again just making exceptions to obedience. In fact, the next verse, it says this real clearly. You'll do this. We'll do this. It says in Solomon Love the Lord, walking in the statute of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Not only did Solomon tolerate this unbiblical ecumenical worship, but Solomon participated. Do you know when the king participated in worship, the king really led in worship. All eyes were on him. And what he did was okay. And Solomon participated in it. Three acts recorded, and all three of them are disobedient to God. Now, they, they do what all good uh, people do. They made excuses, okay? In fact, if you look at the end of verse 2, it says that Solomon allowed that. Why? Because there was no house built under the name of the Lord until those days. So he said, look, it's not that we want to disobey God. It's that there's no place to go and worship. There is a problem with that, though. Um, David is the father of Solomon, okay? Which means that David lived before Solomon. I know that was basic, but it's important to lay a foundation. David wrote this in the 122nd Psalm. As he returns from fleeing from Absalom into the city, it says this. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And David, during his reign, early in his reign over the United Nation, had brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem and established there a tabernacle, and that was where they would come. And everything that was done was to be done there. Why? Because they were to, ark, they were to offer in the place where God chose to set his name. And you could tell that place because the Ark of the Covenant, where God met with them, was setting where God chose to place his name. And so this is just an excuse. So here's Solomon, and he begins his reign. He has all of this. He's gotten rid of the, those that would divide the kingdom. He's got the book of the law. He's written it out. He's there. He's been charged by David, his father, to walk according to it, to do no other thing. And he begins his reign, and the first three things recorded 
are exactly the opposite of what God said. Let me tell you something about us. We get to choose what path we walk on in life. You can choose to walk on this path or that path. So, oh, picture you don't understand. It was my... It was my upbringing. It was terrible. No, I understand. People have terrible upbringings. I didn't. I'm thankful for that. I just understand it happens. But can I tell you this? I'm sorry. I'll help you. But it's still your choice. You get to choose the path you walk on in life. Young people sitting here, you get to choose. You can walk on a path that will lead to destruction. Or you can walk on a path that will lead to life. Hey, listen, you might be halfway through your life and you say, why is my life such a mess? I'll tell you why. Because you made a choice about walking on a path. And would you get this? When you get on the road, you get the potholes that come with that road. No, no, no. You get to choose. Solomon chose. And when Solomon chose, he chose to walk on a path that really was taking his own life and accepting or exempting himself from obedience to the things he knew were true that came from the very mouth of God. So Solomon now goes, verse 4, to Gibeon. Gibeon is called the great high place. It's the, the one where they still had some of the instruments, I believe the tent building and a few of other things of the original tabernacle. And he goes up there to offer a sacrifice. And it says that when he went up there, listen, this was magnificent, verse 4. And he went up there, a thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. So Solomon went up there, made a big deal, not where he should have been, but he was up there and he offered a thousand burnt offerings. And the next verse says that he went to sleep. I know you needed that help. And he had a dream. And God showed up in that dream. In fact, we read it, but I want you to uh, listen and follow along as I read it one more time. It says in verse 5, In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed mercy uh, unto thy servant uh, David my father great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to set on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in, and thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered or counted uh, for multitude. Uh, give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, and neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself uh, understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any rise arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honors, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. Listen to this. And if, did you catch that? There's a requirement, isn't there? That Solomon would change the path he'd chosen for his life. And if thou wilt walk in my ways, to keep my statutes and my commandments as uh, thy, David, thy father David did, 
then I will lengthen thy days. So this is really simple. But after all of this beginning to go that way in his life as king, Solomon comes before God, offered, well, he comes before something. He offers in the great high place these sacrifices, and God steps into his life. Let me say that one more time. And God stepped into his life. And Solomon had what I like to call an aha moment. He is there. He's offered all these sacrifices. He's feeling probably really warm and fuzzy and religious. And God shows up in a dream and says, Solomon, what do you want for your life? And somehow Solomon at that moment said this, well, I need to know what in the world I'm doing. I'm just going to tell you this. I I think poorly a little bit of Solomon for this because he had the book of God's wisdom in his hand. But he was willing to say, look, I, I know that I'm not doing this right. And I need your wisdom to be able to lead your people rightly. I just need to help you with this. You don't need to have a dream tonight to get the wisdom of God. You've got it in your hands right now. You've got more than Solomon had right now in your lap. In fact, if you're acting like a fool, it's only because you are. Because you're sitting on the wisdom of God. And you're either living it or not. But, but Solomon said, God, I, I mean, I just need wisdom. And God said, I'll give you wisdom. And I'll, I'll give you more than wisdom. I'll give you what you didn't ask for. Here's one requirement that I have from you. That that book you got, you walk in it. That the statutes I put down, that you obey them. And Solomon woke up. And look what he does. It says that he woke up the next, uh, uh, the next morning in uh, verse 15. And behold, it was a dream. Listen to this. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast unto his servant. Solomon wakes up and goes, whoa, I can't go that way anymore. And he turns around and he goes back to Jerusalem. Hey, can I say this? Where he should have been to begin with. And he offers another thousand burnt offerings. And then he adds on to that peace offerings. And he makes a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles here, a feast for the people. And what he does is he just says, no, 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 no more high places for Solomon. I'm doing this. It was an aha moment. He's going that way, and he decided to go that way. Yeah, that is an amen. That's a hallelujah. In fact, every one of us needs these moments in our life where God steps in and confronts us with his truth. And we need to be honest and say this. I'm going that way, and I should be going that way. That's what he did. It's an aha moment. Say, why do you call it an aha moment? Because I like that. Because I'm sure that he went like, ah, ha. But here's what's important. You do choose the path you walk on in your life. And you're accountable for that path. And here we find Solomon seemed to move from this path to that path. His way to God's way. But let me tell you something about these choices. You can 
walk on two paths for a while. If you want to. You can, however you want to say it, straddle the fence. But you can walk on two paths in your life and make it look good. It's possible. You choose the path you walk on. But it's possible that you come to a point in your life where you say, I shouldn't really be here. I should be here. And you begin to still have this, but make it look like you're this. Solomon seems to have had this moment which, man, praise God for it. Where he makes a decision to cut from his way and follow God's. And if you and I were to look in over the next two and a half decades or so, I think all we could say about Solomon is, woohoo! Because Solomon, after that, he has that great moment, you know, with the two ladies, one baby living, says, get out the sword, cut, you, know, you understand that, and judges rightly. And then Solomon begins to build. He spends uh, seven years building his palaces, his home. I'm sorry, he spends seven years building the temple of God and 13 years building his palace, palaces. And I mean, it's amazing work. It went on for 20 years. And during all of this time, it would seem like Solomon is focused. I mean, you read some of the events of the building, and I mean, he's, he's busy, he's focused. He's building the finest that he can. He's gathering the finest materials in the world. He's getting the workmen that have the wisdom to do the work. No, no corners are cut. Everything is done perfectly. Because, I mean, why not? If you're following God, what is too much for God? You and I looking in say, Man, thank God for that time in Gibeon when Solomon had this aha moment and he began to follow God. And it goes on for 20 years. He not only does that, we're not going to turn to it all this morning, but, but as, you, as you go further up, by the time you get to 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon leads in great worship. Solomon commits the temple, uh, prays and leads the people to worship God. And God inhabits that temple in such a way that the glory of God was so robust, so thick, that the priests and the Levites couldn't stay in. They went out. And if you'd look at that, you'd be like, man, that boy can preach. And you would think, man, everything is great with Solomon. Solomon got on God's path. And he walks on God's path, and it's wonderful. And look at all that he does. And he, and he built this great house to the Lord. And I mean, he built his own house too, but uh, let's just face it. It's, he, he, I mean, the king deserved a house. How many agree with that? Not a fifth-wheel trailer. Kings don't live in fifth-wheel trailers. They move out when they become preachers, and they do something else. I don't know. But in chapter 9... Of 1 Kings. In verse 24, it says something odd. So, 20 plus years have gone by from the moment in 1 Kings 3 where Solomon has this aha moment. And what seems to be great work for, the God, for God has been undertaken 
and completed. And God has certainly stamped his approval, accepted the temple that Solomon built and said, I will dwell here and I will put my name here and this is the place you will come. But in verse 24 of chapter 9, it says this, But Pharaoh's daughter came up out of the city of David unto her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then did he build Milo. Look at me. 20 plus years have gone by since Solomon said, I've been going my way. I'm going to go God's way. He does all of these things that we go, woohoo. And at the end of that, he still has the wife that never should have been in his life to begin with. Now, I know we just got a deadly Baptist silent. I said, preacher, are you advocating that he divorce her? Uh-huh. Let me explain to you why. I'm not advocating that you divorce your wife or husband. We live in an entirely different dispensation. But here's what we know for sure. After the return from captivity, when the prophet came back, he found them having married again people of the land, and he called them together. And do you know what he said to them? If you want to get right with God, you've got to get that transgression out of your life and have them put them away. And the prophet Nehemiah, the uh, prophet, the man Nehemiah, when he went back, now probably 75 years or more later, and he builds the wall, leads them to build the wall, and he goes and reports back and comes back, and they've intermarried again. And he calls them all together and said, you got to choose. And he says, you got to set them apart. And he required them, if they wanted to be right with God, to set apart these wives and husbands. And here's Solomon, 20 plus years later, who's never dealt according to the law with his wife. And she's still there. I'm going to give you 30 seconds just to get mad. Because she should have been gone. Say, preacher, that's hard preaching. No, that's, that's the Bible. Again, please hear me loud and clear. In fact, maybe this is being recorded. At least get this line and play it over in your head because some of you are going to be like, preacher said I could. That does not have anything to do with how we deal with our wives or husbands today. In fact, what the Bible tells us is, if we're married, we get saved, and our spouse doesn't, that we stay with them as long as they're willing to stay with us, that we might win them. Come on. No, entirely different thing. But in Solomon's time, the way that he corrected this was to divide. You and I choose the path we walk on. And we can walk on two paths for a while and make it look pretty good. But here's the third thing I want you to know. Ultimately, that second path, it will become your life. Unless something intervenes again and you unroot yourself completely from those things, it will become the norm of your life. Let me show you. Flip up to chapter 11. 
of 1 Kings. This is a tragedy that I'm getting ready to read to you. An absolute tragedy. But the reason it takes place is, is because for 20 plus years, Solomon has walked on two paths. And now one is going to become the mark of his life. Verse 1 says, but, Solomon, but King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon claved to these in love. And he had 700 wives. There goes Deuteronomy 17 princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord, uh, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. And Solomon, listen to this phrase, and Solomon went after Ashtoreth. He didn't casually happen by. He pursued the worship of Ashtoreth. And went after uh, uh, Milcom, uh, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned away from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, for as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and I will give it unto thy servant. Notwithstanding in thy days, I will not do it for David, thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son uh, and take it from you. Check this out. Solomon made a choice. And it was to try to keep the things he loved of his old life, and the things he loved of God. He tried to walk two paths. And you know what became his life at the end? Absolute idolatry. In fact, he lost. Solomon is the one that divided the nation of Israel into north and south. It was his cause. And they've never been completely reunited yet. And they won't be until the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And Solomon did all of that. Why? Well, because you can't walk two paths forever. One becomes your norm. And I'm promising you that the one that you hide will become your norm unless God somehow intervenes and you repent and are broken before God and come to him and say, I only want you. You can try to walk two paths. And you'll make it look good for a while. 
but ultimately it will become the norm of your life. And that norm will be destructive to everything that matters in your life. It happened to Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, a dispensation uh, that no one else had. And Solomon absolutely, listen to what Edersheim writes of him, that Solomon is the worst king that ever ruled Israel. I agree. Because he did more to diminish Israel than any other king. He institutionalized idolatry in the very city where he built a house to the true and living God. You can walk and stand on Temple Mount today and look across the Kidron and see the place where Solomon built this grove to worship high places. Solomon destroyed Israel, destroyed his life, destroyed his offspring because he made exceptions to obedience in his own life. Now listen to me today. You sit here today and you have Oh, great religious knowledge. You know about Jesus. You have a bumper sticker with his name on it. But you're really trying to walk in the world and look religious. I can tell you probably today you need something. You need an aha moment. You need to realize that there's something dramatically wrong in the choices you're making about your relationship with Jesus Christ. It might be that you don't know him at all. It might be that you think the way that you earn merit with God is to try to do some religious work, build a temple or two, uh, you know, build a palace that's really nice, do the best I can, and God will somehow be pleased with that and I will merit eternal life. Can I just help you with this? See all this stuff over here that comes from disobedience? That has to be dealt with. You, you just can't, you, know, you can't, uh, you know, try to walk on two paths, make this one look really good, you know, wear the right kind of clothes and shirts, carry the right Bible, sing the right music, don't say the bad words around the preacher, you know, never cuss in the presence of the preacher or anybody else. But none of that changes you. It's entirely possible sitting here today are people who, like Solomon, grew up in an environment where they learned and they made some decisions or professions of decisions, and yet the truth is of your life is that there is a, a double path. You're trying to walk and you're trying to act like the world here and you're trying to please God or your parents here, and I'm telling you, you can't keep it up. And today would be the day that you'd say this to God, you know what, what I have with you is not real at all. And I want it to be real. I don't want to just have the religion of my parents. I don't want to have the religion of my neighbors. Here's what I want. I want a relationship with you. And I can't have it when I walk on two paths. So this is what I'm doing today. I'm forsaking that. I'm confessing it to you. And I'm asking you to take all of my sin away and make me only yours. That could be you today. Oh, preacher, I'm doing better than worse. Oh, no, that's the exception. It might be that you're here today and you know for sure that there was a moment in your life that you came to Christ and you received him as your savior and yet the life you live right now is not at all honest as you know it. Because in you there are decisions that you're constantly living with don't want anyone to necessarily know about that are completely different than what God has said to you for your life. So everybody you try to put on the air, everyone thinks you're walking here. But you're really walking here. Warning. 
this will take you over. And today would be the day to get on your face before God and say this. I have made the last exception before you to obeying you. And I'm turning away from all of that. I'm confessing it to you. And I'm going to walk one path of obedience to you through your word. No matter who walks with me, there'll be one path in my life. I will follow you. Say, preacher, I think I'm doing okay. No, no. You know if you made a decision that puts you on one path or whether you're really trying to balance two. Stop the struggle. Begin to really bring glory to God. Come to this altar this morning. Do whatever it takes to be redeemed, to turn back, to be renewed. Do whatever it takes in your life. Break a relationship. Start a new career. Do whatever it takes in your life to walk one path in obedience to God. Now's your time to choose. Stand with me. There's an altar open to you. There's help available for you. I'm going to have a word of prayer with you. There's no need to ever wait. Get this in your mind. If God's dealing with you today and you know you belong here and you know you need help, even as I speak and even as I pray, you begin to come. Don't wait for music. Don't wait for anything else. Just say this. I've got to deal with God. I can only walk one path. I've got to get things right with him. Father, help us today in this time of invitation uh, to do only one thing. Decide to go one way and have that way be your way. And to do it with our whole life, whole heart, whole mind. No exceptions to obedience. Convict us where they exist in our life. Give us the humility to lay them down in repentance and in confession and to turn to you and walk a single path with all of our might for the rest of our days. Help us, Father. Help the one that's here today that is lost but religious to get off of that path of confusion and struggle and to come today and receive Jesus as their Savior alone and to walk one path in their life. I pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. The piano begins to play or the music. And this time is yours. It's yours to get on a single path, to simplify your life, as they might say. Stop battling between your way and his. Find Christ and follow him. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're a visitor. Could I invite you right now to just say enough? Enough of trying to figure it out. Enough of acting like I'm okay. Enough of saying, I don't need a Jesus. I just want to walk on a path of life. Would you come? Would you step out of your pew and would you come down here? Just say, just, just, just I'll meet you here. Just say to me, preacher, I, I know I need Jesus as my Savior. And somebody's going to take a Bible today. They're going to show you how to walk on the path of the Master with your life.